what what it means to look or to fix the mind of our our minds, our souls, our hearts on the on the person of Jesus. What it means to really permanently dance with Jesus Christ. Very important rhythm that Paul says. He tells us to fix our minds and our hearts on things that are good and noble and worthy, the things of God. And in doing so, what we greatly increase the chances of happening in our life are, are dwelling in Jesus' joy. Second idea we want to talk about beginning today. It's one thing to know how to experience Jesus' joy. Know him well. Love your, love your neighbor in the kingdom of God and outside of the kingdom of God. Those are joy rhythms. But over these next weeks, we want to begin talking about what it means to live a life where we are perpetually joyful. That doesn't mean perfectly joyful. It doesn't mean that after four weeks you're going to say, I heard four, four sermons and I, I'm never going to be without joy again. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that much like these rhythms of uh, these dancing rhythms, gospel community and mission, there are things we can do that greatly increase our chances, our, our opportunities to remain in Jesus's joy. So the first truth teaches us how to experience his joy. The latter teaches us how to remain in it. And when I became a Christian in 1997, I was in my 20s, I heard a slogan that I am sure many of you heard quite a bit and still do to this day. Especially if you listen to any Christian radio stations, you will likely hear this. It is very true in a lot of Christian worship. We even mentioned it a few times here this morning. Uh, so much so that it sort of dominated the landscape of Christian thinking. It's this, it's this idea of God being good. Any of you ever heard that? This is a test on worship since we just sang that literally like two minutes ago, right? So it's this idea that God is good. And I've heard this a lot in my life, uh, so much so, especially when I first became a Christian, that it somewhat trivialized the reality of it. I got confused by it at times. It was a very powerful truth. I'm not denying the, the, the authenticity of the truth. I'm just saying sometimes we throw that statement around in such a broad and general way that I think we, we miss the substance of what it really means. And we might actually lack the experience of what it means to believe it deeply. Joy. So I got confused about it, and here's why. This is probably going to make a lot of sense to you. Uh, one of the main reasons that I was regularly confused by it was because I stumbled upon the hard reality that sometimes in a worship service or in a community group or a small group, eventually as I got into ministry and I started teaching students and adults over the years, what happened is, is we would say this a lot, and it sounded at times awesome in theory, but it didn't always feel that way when I lined it up to the everyday matters of my life. For example, uh, a, a message like this, is likely, I'm not saying we don't have hardship right now in our lives, but it's likely going to be a little easier to hear something like this today than, for example, if you're in a downtown suburb of Houston. Or uh, my family and I shared this last week. We lived in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, and we were singing these songs after the storm, but we didn't feel that because we were homeless and living in people's back bedrooms. There is this reality of the, the theological theory, right, what we sing about, and then actually believing this and experiencing the reality that God is good to the point where we, we have joy and we are able to kind of overcome and endure what's going on in life. And so like many of you, I was led to believe that God's promise to be good to us meant that he would make my life easy and that my problems were going to go away. That's sort of how this was introduced to me. Maybe you were not taught this this way. I hope you weren't. But for a great many people over time, this is sort of the subliminal reality of what we think with this. When we hear God is good, we tend to equate that with ease and you know, kind of a fluid, smooth life. And that certainly can be true and is often true. But if it was only true in that way, it would really be a problem for us because it leaves us ill-prepared to address the realities and the hardships of life. Challenges that, that really do come up upon us on a regular basis. And so over time, I saw that this, this wasn't true. It, I mean, God is good is true, but it wasn't true that God being good meant life was always easy. Consequently, this truth is more about giving us a new lens, a new, a new set of tools, if you will, and when I say tools, I mean these come straight from the throne of heaven 
to be able to look at the challenges of life and the good areas of life, the ups and the downs, and say that God has actually equipped me for anything that takes place in life, particularly the hardships. If you want to know why a lot of people don't have joy, it's because they are just inundated with their circumstances in life. So this promise, as we talk about God is good this week, it's not a promise or, or a declaration of truth that means life is always easy. There's not a promise connected to this that God, where God says, I'm going to take all of this away. But there is a deep promise that he gives us that he will never leave us or forsake us through the reality of life, no matter where we are with it. And so as promised, today we're going to begin looking at what it means to set our minds on some critical truths about God. To really dwell on what is good and noble and praiseworthy and right. And I'm telling you, one of the best things you can fix the mind and the heart on, your mind and your heart, is the reality that God is good and cares about you. And that will greatly increase your ability to find and remain in Christ's joy. And so it's my prayer that we would ask God to let our hearts rest in what we're going to talk about over these next weeks, certainly today. Because when these truths have been deeply believed, they become a catalyst to deeply and consistently experience the joy of Jesus. So the dwelling rhythm that we're looking at today is living your life in such a way that you really believe God is good to you in all things and in all areas of life. You can get to the place where the truth actually trumps the feeling. So good that it stops you from looking to anything else in this life for purpose, for meaning, or for worth. This is, the, this is sort of the end of the equation. The way you will honestly know whether or not you deeply believe God is good to you is by asking yourself, what is it you look to when life gets difficult? This belief is evidenced in your life when you learn to turn to God no matter what you're going through, to rest in the Lord no matter what you're going through, because you really believe he wants to show you his goodness through it. Let me just give you a logical example here. Uh, think about this from the angle of parenting, okay? Let's, I have kids, and if my, parent, or excuse me, if my children did not believe that I was a good father to them, it is very likely that during their times of trial and need, they would look elsewhere. That says something. There's an action there, right? That really says something about how they view fatherhood in their life. The same is true with our Father in heaven. If the first time we're stressed or disgruntled or angry or whatever it is that's going on, if we start looking to things that are not God like they are God, it evidences something about, about how we believe or how we understand the role and the nature of our Father in heaven in our lives. We want to be the types of people who, who really look to God in all circumstances. And this leads me to the first truth I want to share with you this morning. We're going to look at a pretty powerful passage in the New Testament, one that I've taught on here a few times from a few different angles, the Samaritan woman at the well. But today we want to look at it from the particular area of what Jesus is communicating to this woman who has a great need in her life. She is without joy. So the first thing I want to share with you this morning is that the foundation of believing God is good to you is rooted in knowing what well you're drinking from to satisfy your soul in life. This is a matter of what, what cup you turn to what you drink, what you are letting hydrate, or at least theoretically hydrate your soul. What is it you're turning to? And the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well is one of the best examples we have of this truth. There are lots of passages in the Bible that Jesus addresses this same thing. He is basically getting to the heart of a person who, who's looking for something, but does not realize they're really looking for God. This is, I think, the best one. I'm not trying to rank them, but I really feel like it's the best one, because it has incredible levels of humanity in it, struggle and trial. And so when we read about this interaction with Jesus in John chapter 4, you have this troubled Samaritan woman. This text was just read to us, but I want to I sort of story up and give you the, the paraphrase version. She's at this well attempting to fetch water, right? She's thirsty, physically thirsty. Common thing people did every single day. They went to the well in Jesus' day and got water. And while she's doing so, Jesus is in the area and walks up to her and asks her for a drink of water. And the woman 
knowing this is culturally unacceptable, much like last week where we talked about Old Testament sacrifice. Remember, when we think about this here, there's a whole set of laws, religious laws, that apply to what's going on in this passage that no longer apply to us today. And so what's happening here is Jesus goes up to a woman who is culturally unacceptable in her day for a number of reasons. First of all, she's a Samaritan woman. She's sort of a hybrid human being. Sad to say, but racism and judgment existed in Jesus' day too. This was viewed as a lesser person in his world who Jesus was not allowed to associate with because of his purebred Judaism. Secondly, as we find out here momentarily, she is an immoral Samaritan woman. Uh, And because of Jesus' status as a Jew, he was forbidden to associate with her. She was involved in multiple affairs. We know this because Jesus tells us this as we look at the conversation here. And so you've got this really tumultuous situation where a Jewish man walks up to an immoral Samaritan woman and he starts talking to her. And she knows he's not supposed to do this, which is why she is essentially staving him off. But what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't care about any of those customs. He is looking way beyond the the curtains of the day, all that stuff. He's pulling it back and he begins to speak directly to this woman. And he says, listen, after she denies him a drink, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He cuts through all of the nonsense and he gets right to our heart. Now, what Jesus does here, this is a side note, but it's a side note that's a very important one. Because a couple of weeks ago, for two weeks in a row, I challenged you guys to really think about who it is in your life that you can bless and love in the name of Jesus. Who is it that through word and deed you can care for in the name of Christ? That's a word, we, we try not to use it today in the church wor- world because it's like a dirty word, but I think it's a good word. It's the word evangelism. It's how we genuinely represent Jesus in our world. It's not a bad word to me, it's a good word. It's a scriptural word. And you're actually observing it right here in this passage. This is a great example of Jesus evangelizing, of Jesus using the very natural circumstances of life, a literal water in a well, and a person who is thirsty. And he takes this and he just builds a platform to be able to spread grace. It's amazing. And so here, he's not just talking about drinking water with her, although they are all all physically thirsty. He is using natural life circumstances as an opportunity to meet people where they are at. And when I mean meet, I mean he is immediately trying to address what he knows are the deepest needs of her life. And so before we move on, I have to point out, this is not a story, although it is, I guess, you know, by the very, in in general, this is a story about a, a person in the scripture that we're studying. But this story is common in the, per, in, in the person of every person on earth. Every single person has this story. It might look different, but it's the same reality. Every single person on earth needs something. Some people thirst for love. Some people thirst for acceptance or forgiveness. For those of you who are industrious, it is very likely that you need acceptance. You want to be affirmed in your vocation. If you're a parent, you want to know that you raised your children well. We look to these things for significance. We look to these things for purpose. And for good reason, we have been built to be significant and to have purpose. And so we shouldn't be surprised that people are generally trying to find these things in life. That's the good side of the equation. Where we go for them is a whole other side that we need to discuss today. And so there's a general question that has to be asked when we look at the Samaritan woman and certainly apply her reality to our lives. The question becomes, where do you go to get these needs met? Where do I go? I'm part of this. Now, in this story, Jesus is pointing out that there are many things you can turn to. Let me put this in the, in the modern world vernacular. In this situation here, she's looking to men, and we'll get to that here in a moment. But what Jesus is saying 
is that there are many things you and I can turn to to have these needs met. You want worth, you want acceptance, you want forgiveness, you want whatever it is you want, there are places you can go. Things like people, these are the common ones. I share them a lot. We we look to other people to have these needs met. We can look to relationships. You can put that burden on somebody. Some of us turn to possessions. Uh, If you are the industrious type, you look to your work to be satisfied, workaholism. Sometimes people flat out go for the big S word. They just look to sin. They try to, you know, drown their sorrows in personal pleasure. There is a lengthy list of things we can look to. But according to what Jesus says here, every one of these things is just going to leave you thirsty. They are very small sips of water. Unlike the mammoth cup that God offers us in this passage, his offer to the woman and to us today is different. He promises not just to drink, not just to sip. He promises to create. This is a language steeped in Old Testament sacrifice, in Old Testament theology. He promises to bring living water to us. He promises to make us an eternal well. He doesn't just say, here's a cup of water, hydrate. He says, I'm going to put in you a well that actually can never be, you can never stop this thing once it's in you. It is going to constantly flood your life with my goodness and my grace. It is a spring of living water that never runs dry. If we want the the genuine needs of our soul met, if we want to live in joy and experience joy, you have to ask, what is hydrating you? What What is the spiritual hydration zone in your life? What are you turning to? If you want the the, your, the thirst of your soul to be quenched, it is found only in Christ. And so after making the Samaritan woman this offer, Jesus asks her to do what he wants us all to do, what I'm asking you to do today, me too, to take an honest look at yourself and to ask, where is it you're finding joy in life right now? If you are very joyful, just say, where, what is it that makes me joyful? And that's not to say that friends and family and possessions, all these things can be good, so long as they are not the ultimate things you derive joy from in life. However, if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you've come into this room maybe without joy, maybe you are physically ailing right now, you are hurt, or there's a spiritual and emotional issue, then you have to ask, what is it that you feel? You know, what is it that, if it, was, if it was in your life, would make you joyful again? Both sides of that equation, with or without joy, begin to indicate what it is we ultimately derive joy from. And that's the question he asks the Samaritan woman here. And he does this by asking her a pretty profound question. He says, hey, um, who's your husband? And she says, I I actually don't have one right now. And Jesus, because we know he knows everything, and he sees directly into the heart, he says, that's right. uh, But you had five husbands to date, and you're now living with a man who is not your husband. So the point of this was pretty pointed, no pun intended. And I want you to hear me here. Uh, I don't think Jesus is being rude here. I don't think he's trying to be crass. I don't think he's trying to hammer her with Jewish morality in the day. I think what's happening here is he goes right to the heart of the matter. He says, listen, we're not even going to beat around the bush anymore. I want you to see a pretty important life-changing truth. He's saying you are drinking from a well that is dehydrating your soul, and it is not satisfying you. His question really could have been this, like, what is it you're looking to for joy in life right now? And she says, hey, um, men, lots of them, <laughs> lots of them, who clearly, we don't have the backdrop here, but it's pretty fair to say they are taking advantage of her. And Jesus knows that. And so he introduces a, a new form of manhood, if you would, to a, a, a good one and a noble one and a true one and a right one. In his grace, Jesus challenges her to face the truth about herself in order to find his lasting joy. He literally says, much like Paul says in Philippians, if you want true and lasting joy, if you want to experience fulfillment in life, if you want to to really know God deeply, 
to be something different than you are right now, if you want a wellspring of Jesus' grace in your heart, you've got to be honest about what is going on in your life and the condition of your soul. You have to be honest about that. And sometimes we cannot be honest with ourselves. It sort of proves the point of what I said earlier on in this series. Sometimes uh, we need the voice of God and the voice of people who love us in Jesus to objectively help us understand where we are. Because as you know, we can oftentimes, I don't want to say we are purposely deceiving ourselves, although I'm sure that can happen, but sometimes we can be so blinded and inundated by the realities and the circumstances of life that we have a hard time seeing where we are clearly. And so in this case, Jesus comes in and objectively helps her understand where she is at. The same can be true for us. And the bottom line of what he is pointing out to her is that he wants her to stop living in sin and in denial. Her denial is fueling her sin. She is just like grasping at straws to find something in life to bring value to her. And that's why we can confidently say this passage, while it addresses morality, I think we really miss the point of this if we walk away from a passage like this and say, uh, moral story today, Pastor Anthony, is we shouldn't have five live-in boyfriends or girlfriends and you know, maybe a sixth one on the side. That's, re that's real. I mean, that's not good. But there's something much deeper driving her behavior here. She is drinking from a well that cannot satisfy her heart. And what's funny about this, I say funny not in a, in a denigrating way, but sort of like with an irony, is that she's done it six times. That's why Jesus says, you've had five and you have another living person now. What he's pointing out here is like, you keep, it's not even like you drank from the cup and, and it, it kind of burned your tongue and, and you moved away. She just keeps going back to the same circumstance in life. So on the outside, it looks like a conversation about bad relationships with men, but Jesus is saying something much, much more significant. And the application point for us is here. You know, you've tried to quench the needs of your soul. You tried to find joy in a string of unfulfilling relationships with men. And then he offers her something better. He points out where the cup is dry. And then says, let me explain to you how I can fill this up. One of the greatest reasons that we get stuck in life, one of the greatest reasons why... We often utter the words, I'm, I'm without joy in life, I'm without peace in life, is because at times we are just unwilling to face the truth about what is robbing us of our joy and our peace, what is damming up the well. I use this analogy a lot. It isn't like the wells run dry. If we believe what Jesus has said, he will put in us a spring of life that cannot be stopped. Then the question becomes, what is it we are doing? What is it we are believing? What is it we are turning to? That is plugging up the well. The well cannot be stopped. But we can certainly impede its flow. And so even conventional wisdom. By what we're looking at today. Says that this is somewhat of an irrational behavior. And it's a common irrationality for a great many people. And there's a kind of a, a, a worldly proverb. That dis defines this, this behavior as insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again. While hoping to produce different results in life. And I think what's interesting about this, and maybe for us too, is that it is sort of human nature. This story makes sense to me because we've probably all been here, not necessarily with these exact circumstances, but we've been in a place in life where we are dry and looking for peace and hope. And rather than admitting this to Jesus, Jesus has to kind of, you know, flanagle his way into our heart. What we see here is the common response that we often have to being dry. When, when people are inquiring about it, or maybe it's the reason why we can't find joy. It's human nature to want to present ourselves in the best possible light to ourselves and others. That's what's happening here. Jesus is having to essentially, 
he's presenting her to himself for her because she hasn't got the courage to do it yet. The challenge with this is that true spiritual growth and joy, that's what it produces. Spiritual growth produces good joy. It only comes when we're willing to lay aside that persona and to face the truth about our lives before Jesus. And that's why it is so important to avoid lying to yourself about the true state of where you're at. It's important to not rationalize or make excuses. Sometimes you just have to get before the Lord and say, hey, I'm really tired, or hey, I'm really aggravated, or hey, I'm really fill in the blank. The Lord already knows that about you. He knows that about us. He knows that these are real situations that come up in our lives. And by being open and transparent with God and people whom we deeply love and love us, something can happen. We can actually get back on the road to joy. God is going to use these circumstances to bring us to the place where he wants us to be. When we do this, when we essentially practice insanity, though, when we deny the joy process, what often happens is we start living in a lie. We opt to feel good about ourselves in a present moment at the expense of having joy for the rest of our lives. And what happens here fundamentally when we keep going back to the wrong cups is we trade the wellspring for a sip of salt water. We baptized last week in the ocean. It was cold, it was rough, and it was wet. And it was a beautiful thing to see, but I took one for, the, for Team Jesus last week for our church, baptizing people. I mean, it was really rough, and I had mouthfuls of salt water while I was out there. And I didn't walk out of there like, man, that's great. I want to fill a bottle of that. I want to fill that up, take my bottle up and take it home. You leave parched and salty and scratchy, right? That's the reality. Drink a mouthful of salt water today if you want to know the physical reality of what Jesus says happens to your soul when we can't actually embrace this, when we can't humbly and honestly face the truth. And when we face the truth, when we turn to Jesus as we are, what happens is something pretty beautiful. It's actually what happens in this passage is you find an unending, thirst-quenching source of life, love, and acceptance. Jesus can take our denial, he can take our sin, and he will forgive it. And he will make, as hard as this is to, to say, but it's the premise of my sermon, he can make good things out of bad circumstances in our life. He can do that. So before we can enjoy Jesus' living water like that, we have to face the truth about ourselves. And we do that by asking ourselves if we really believe God is good to us. Maybe take a moment now and ask that. Like, you have guaranteed a, fun, a, a default answer. Is God good to me? You probably have a yes or a no that popped up pretty immediately. We have to ask, what is it we are looking to to find hope and fulfillment and joy in life when given the chance or when we desperately are without it? You have to ask yourself if in your, if your own personal way, do you have your own personal version of five husbands and a live-in boyfriend that you're hoping will bring you peace and joy that, Jesus, that only Jesus can provide you? And so if you turn to something other than Jesus, the best hope, the best, the best that this can become is what I would call a hope, a, a sip of false joy, meaning it might make you feel good for a little bit. Just looking at the Samaritan woman, it's probably fair to say that in between five and six, when she was, you know, relationally without a person, she found a new boyfriend and it probably felt good for a little bit. But based on the pedigree of what's happening, it's probably going to end up in the same place where all the other relationships were. That's what I'm saying here. It's a false, it's a false sip of hope that leaves us drier than we were prior to taking a sip of the cup. It causes us to dwell so much in our present reality that we often lose or rob ourselves of the joy, future joy God wants to provide in our lives. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. There are only two. We've got to ask ourselves, what is it we're drinking from? What is it we're turning to? What is it we're looking to? 
If you want to dwell in the truth that God is good, you must learn to see the spiritual forest from the trees. And this is a kind of one of my personal proverbs. I use it a lot. If you ever sat at a coffee table with me, you've heard me say this. In order to dwell in the truth that God is good, you must learn to see the spiritual forest from the trees. You have to be able to stop, step back, and let God help you see the clarity in your circumstances. You have to dwell on that. You have to fix, on, uh, fix your mind on that. The reason some of us never consistently live in Jesus' joy is because we are totally fixed on the present circumstances of life. We have no longer, uh, we've removed, if you will, the fixation, the gaze of our eyes is no longer on the fact that God is a good God. What starts happening is, is we get to this place where we focus on everything that's going on in our lives, circumstances. And so using Paul's language in Philippians, we don't fix our minds on the good and noble things of God. That's what he says to do. He gives us a book of three chapters on joy. And then he ends it by saying, now finally, my brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on that, is what, that which is good and noble and, and right. Let me explain what I mean by this. The woman at the well, like so many of us, often plug up this eternal wellspring God has put in our heart. Because we get so consumed by what we're going through today that we no longer are overwhelmed by the promises and grace of God to, vi to live victoriously through what we're going through today. So the circumstances of life rob the reality of the promises of God. This is what I mean by when it comes to our faith, no longer seeing the forest and the trees in our faith. Our life struggles, our stressors, which God promises his power and presence to overcome. God gives us his son. He gives us his word. He gives us prayer. He gives us his people. He gives us this amazing support network, not to take stuff away, not even to make it easier, but to help us endure. What happens is something that God can bring good out of, something that God uses to drive us to his grace, can actually start to ravage us. And while God never promised to take all of our problems away, he does promise something pretty profound, that he will never forsake us through them, and he will always use them for his glory and our good. Romans physically, literally makes that promise to us. And this is what I mean by seeing the forest from the trees. It is learning to believe deeply with our hearts that life is like a blip of uh, life's like a blip on the radar of God's economy and eternity. And our struggles are an even smaller blip. And please hear me here when I say this. I'm not saying your struggles or my struggles are trivial or insignificant. That's what, not what I mean by a blip. But what I mean is, is when you take your present struggle and you zero it out and you look at the past story of God and the present story of God and the future story of God, you realize what a blip the circumstance is. Think about your life right now. Um, for those of you who can do this, think back 10 years, 10, 12, 15 years. Think about a major event in your life. It is very likely that at this very moment, you have a circumstance in your past, a harrowing one, a not so great one, that almost ruined you, almost wrecked you. That was incredibly difficult. One of those like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do in these moments. You lose a job or the loss of a spouse or an ill child, whatever it is. Think about these things and then think about your life today. Maybe you're in the middle of the struggle and this is not applicable to you, but it is guaranteed that if you can look back at a prior struggle and you have the perspective I'm talking about today, you can likely with hindsight, not say it was good. It wasn't a good circumstance, but God was good to me through the circumstance. Oftentimes, we learn lessons through those, those matters that reshape who we are as people. They, they create a greater sense of value and purpose in our life. They bring, a, they bring a substance to life 
uh, a depth, if you will, a vitality that we often can't have unless we have endured some of this stuff. This is some of the way that God can make good, that God can be good during situations that are not necessarily good. I simply mean in all of this, when compared to the goodness of our God, we have the power to stop being defined by struggle. We have the power to stop being defined by trial, temptation, circumstance, at the expense of the bigger picture. We're missing the point if the circumstance is ravaging us. I think when it comes to the circumstance, no matter what it is, the number one thing God wants us to take away from it is that he is with us through the circumstance. He is with us through the trial. He is in us and present with us. That is seeing the forest from the trees. It is learning not to you know, stick your head in the sand about the circumstances of life, but it's learning to dwell on, the, on God's goodness and presence in them, during them to overcome it. One of the great examples we have of this in the Bible, uh, and this is a person who has really, uh, there have been a few, few people in Scripture that have really become sort of like case studies for me. Uh, Paul is one. I've mentioned this to you, Jesus, clearly. Uh, in the Old Testament, because that stuff matters too. There's some really good stuff back there also. Uh, there's this guy named Moses, and he's one of the, the great examples, I think, of a person who gets this. In fact, he's sort of a bit of a variable, because if you look at it, he actually has good circumstances in his life. But yet he realizes that his good circumstances were actually keeping him from knowing God the way we're talking about here, from recognizing the goodness of God in his life and the purpose he had for him. Here's a guy, if you've studied the Old Testament, who's got it all. He's wealthy, part of the royal Egyptian dynasty. He's got every reason to continue in an incredibly comfortable lifestyle. Nothing wrong with the lifestyle. I'm just saying he is, he's like blissfully ignorant about life. And then one day he's like walking around his other people, his community, right? Big word we use here. And he starts saying to himself, like, man, I've been ignoring the plight of God's people, of my people. Oh, my gosh, like... Like, my life is really good right now, but it doesn't look like anybody else's is. Literally living the life every Egyptian wanted to live, wants for nothing under heaven. But in the middle of this, and over time, he begins to see the futility in that way of living. And he recognizes that while he has everything under heaven, he is trading it for the presence of his father in heaven. He's disconnected deeply. And so he does the unthinkable. He doesn't actually migrate away from a bad circumstance. He walks away from a good one. He gives it all up, wealth, power, to serve a greater cause. He subjects himself to the plight of the people of God. He trades the life of a prince for that of a slave. He trades the drop of water for the eternal life spring. And he's in the will of God again. It's pretty amazing. Not perfect. Moses has a pretty storied history. But in his case, he comes to realize that living in a disobedience, essentially being defined from a circumstance at the expense of being disconnected from God, in his case, He's living in disobedience. He's pursuing temporal pleasure. He realizes that he's never going to be fulfilled in the way he can be fulfilled by being obedient to his Lord. And so he trades temporal pleasure for eternal pleasure. And God starts, you know, it's like a booster rocket. It sends him into the heavens and he's one of the most prolific figures in the Old Testament. One of the most profound figures in the Old Testament that actually moves the kingdom of God forward. He sees the forest from the trees. This is where the true power for lasting joy comes from in Christianity. It's learning to identify that while sipping from the temporal pleasures of life, they might satisfy us for a season. It will ultimately rob us from the everlasting satisfaction of dwelling in God's presence for eternity. Simply put, according to Jesus, true joy can only be experienced 
when you trade temporal cups of life for the eternal wellspring of God's living water. You have to look at what you're drinking. And I give you a handful of examples today that are, I think are very, very common examples of how we often sip from the wrong cups. When it comes to faith, it's when we might trade a perceived moral freedom for the truth of God that sets us free. Essentially, we, we pursue something thinking it's freedom, but it's actually not freedom. It's a bondage. We trade the freedom of living the way God desires us to live. And man, I'm realizing there's like a million examples of this I can give you. But I just want to be general here. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to apply this to you, to me. It's when we say, you know, God desires this for my life, whatever that is. But I've chosen that for my life. It's when we make our own morality. We trade selflessness for selfishness. We trade serving the God of all grace who gave himself up for us, expecting nothing in return. We put conditions on love and grace. Living like this is a, is a reminder. It's learning to delight ourselves in the things that might be opposed to the goodness of God. Plugs up the wellspring. Here's another example. This is incredibly common today. It's when we trade a perceived form of spirituality rooted in our own ideas and not God's, which will set us free. This is incredibly important. In the Christian faith, spirituality is defined. There's, there's actually a substance to it. There's, there's a, a, a clear set of expectations God has for our lives in it. You know, most of the counseling issues I've dealt with over the years where people are stuck, it's usually rooted in them practicing a Christianity that isn't entirely Christianity. They say things like, well, you know, I just can't forgive myself. Think about this. You ever been in a place in your life where you have been unable to forgive yourself? None of you? <laughs> Who wants to get up and tell a story, right? None of you. Think about this. How, how cosmically disconnected is it to walk around bludgeoning ourselves to death, unable to forgive ourselves, when the premise of our faith is that God has offered forgiveness to those who seek it? It's a pretty substantial disconnect. Or it's when we get to this place where we, we have problems that, that really stop us from seeing the goodness of God. We, we hear a truth like what I'm saying today, fix my eyes on the goodness of God, but I, we just can't. And we fix our eyes on the circumstances of life. There's a lot of these things, and sometimes they might even sound good. They might sound clever. But whenever we begin to practice Christianity that isn't Christianity, whenever we begin to embrace truth that isn't truth, we wind up creating problems in our life. We wind up plugging up the spring. And so contrary to popular cultural belief, obedience to God's commands is one of the main ways you and I experience his goodness. That's what Jesus is telling this woman at the well here. He's saying, I want to tell you something that... My Father in Heaven wants you to know. Turn away from all of this and follow me. That is sort of a command. And there are lots of them in the Bible. And commands can be viewed as like a dirty term or a problematic term. But I think when you understand the nature of why Jesus is telling us stuff and sometimes telling us to do stuff, it's because he wants us to be at the place we're talking about today. He wants us to have purpose and meaning and hope and joy in life. And it is unfortunate that for a great many people... We sort of rob ourselves of the joy of Jesus because we see obedience to God as drudgery or maybe even a penance we have to perform to please him. We might feel that, you know, trading the temporal pleasures of life is sort of like being robbed. I hear that a lot. This is my life. I'm going to do what I want with it. And yeah, you can do that. I mean, we get to live our lives the way we want, but could it be that there's a fallacy in that? Maybe the fallacy is that we, we are not truly experiencing our lives unless we are understanding them from the way that God has created them. These kinds of attitudes create a form of faith built on, uh, built on half-hearted obligation or just general confusion rather than a vital union with Jesus. 
where we practice a joyful obedience that makes us more like God. So think about this. If we truly believe God is good, then the kind of people he wants us to become must be good too. Good in the Jesus way. You can't become that person if you don't dare to trust in and obey the God who gave his life up for you on the cross. When you look to that, things like trial and suffering, obedience, the thorn in our side, Apostle Paul clearly had things he struggled with, whatever it may be, they can actually become the good life. I'm not saying the circumstances are good, but I'm saying we can actually experience goodness during those things when we see the forest from the tree because they have purpose and meaning in life. They're no longer random issues or personal penance we must impose on ourselves. They become something God can and wants to use, something God wants to restore our hope in him through. Our struggles are no longer seen as something that reveal God's displeasure with us. That's a whole other problem. Sometimes people feel like life is tough because God is punishing them. That's not always the case. In fact, we have some pretty clear stories in Scripture where that wasn't the case at all, like Job, and believing that is a real problem. Rather, these are things that God can use us or can use to bathe us in his, his extreme love and his mercy. And I leave you with this story because I think we need a physical example of this. I shared it before in the first year of restoration. I want to share it again. It was a friend of mine who illustrated this in a pretty powerful way. It was a young pastor who was sharing with a group of other pastors uh, who told about his, because he was on the other end of this, but he was telling about his diagnosis with brain cancer. This was a dude in his 30s. And in his story, uh, he told the group lots of things. But one of the things he said is that he didn't believe that he could know for certain that God orchestrated his suffering and trial. You know, that's a road we go down that could be a problem. That will that'll rob us from God's goodness, automatically blaming God for everything. But he brought up a good point. He said, I do know, though, that God could do anything he wants, and he could have stopped the cancer. So we know that, right? He went on to say, though, I guess I could have dwelt in a lot of things, but what I chose to dwell on there in that time, what I was looking to, was the reality that God was constantly kind and good to me during it. And his point was, and I think it's a valid one. I'm going to ad-lib here a little bit. His point was that sometimes we are assigned to struggle. There are examples of that in Scripture. Other times we bring them upon ourselves, and it is wrong to point the finger at our Father in Heaven. We just do things that invite ruckus into our lives. It's very rare that we can ever know which one is the case. But no matter what, we can know that God can and wants to show us his goodness through them. He wants to help us become more like him through them. And I don't want to deny that at times the way God refines our hearts, the way he brings us into a more fully formed image of himself, sometimes that can be painful and challenging. Sometimes we have to give things up. Sometimes we have to deny ourselves. We have to put others before ourselves. Sometimes we have to make very difficult life decisions. I guess the point I want to make here is that there actually can be great meaning in that, in all of that. And if you really understand God's goodness, they can actually become a mark of God's love for you and I. He's going to navigate us to the place we should be, on the mountaintop or in the valley. So we have to see the forest from the trees. We have to ask ourselves, do we believe that God is good? Do we believe that he's always good in our circumstances? And that he's always leading us to a more fruitful place in life through them. That is the lens Jesus wants you and I to see our life through. It is the lens he provided a Samaritan woman at a well. To live as if you believe that God is good to the point where you no longer need to look elsewhere for joy helps you to trust God even during the mysteries in life. I'm convinced that that story about brain cancer, think about this, right? I have said this a lot. Humans, most of us, do not like mystery. We want things lit up. 
We want to know details. Why did this happen? Those are good questions. How did this happen? Good questions. But we don't always get those answers. We don't always get immediate answers. And sometimes in life, we don't get any answers. Stuff just happens. And we're taking a shot in the dark at the reasons why. When you realize God is good, when you realize he's got purpose in that, when you realize there might not even be a place to, to voice a disagreement with what is going on in your life, something can change. You'll learn to find peace and hope, even in the mystery, when it does not provide the answers we want. Sometimes in life we get answers. It happens. Sometimes we do not. But no matter what we're going through, God wants to use those situations to help us see the forest from the tree. So as we close this morning, ask yourself, every one of us has a cup or cups that we sip from in life. Many of them, I am sure, are good. But in the event that there is one that is not, please don't leave this room today without starting a dialogue with your Father in Heaven. Ask if you are hydrating your soul in some places that, that might be more salt water, not the wellspring of water here. Make sure you're not sipping on something that is dehydrating you. Ask yourself if you're, if you're really drinking from the wellspring Jesus has put in your heart. And as we close, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about where you find joy, what you're looking to for joy, and what is it you will do about it during this time of response? Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a time of drinking coffee and hanging out. Thank you for a time of, of musical worship and for a time of, of teaching in your word. I pray, Lord, that you will use all of the things that have happened here today to help us to fall more in love with you. Help, God, everything that has taken place this morning, everything we have experienced and engaged in this morning, use these, these, uh, these tools, God, you've given us to worship you, to now soften our hearts to the place where we, in a very busy world, spend a couple of quiet minutes right now thinking, praying, processing, processing, and meditating on what it is that we have heard. We have received a great deal from you this morning. I pray, Lord, now that you would shift the attention of our hearts to what it is that you call us to, what it is you ask from us now. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. For the next couple of minutes,